All right, folks, it is uh, time for us to get started. I think our online people have joined us now, and so we want to welcome you here, whether you're in person with us uh, or you're watching online. With the time change, I guess the people that are in person are the ones that don't mind driving in the dark, because it's already dark when you left to come here today. Uh, makes it a little bit harder, I think, but uh, however you're joining with us, we're certainly glad that you're here. Today will be the last Wednesday night of Equip for our fall semester. That doesn't mean we won't have Equip next week, we, or we won't have Wednesday night next week. We will. Um, we will have our Thanksgiving service next Wednesday. If you've never been to that before, I'd encourage you to join us uh, next Wednesday night. Brian, will that be online, or is that just going to be live? That's a good question. So I don't, we don't know if, so you, those of you that are joining us online, you may not, I don't think we usually put that online. We'll have to go back and look. Um, because most of that is you sharing. It's people in our congregation sharing things that they're thankful to the Lord for, thankful to the church for. Um, and we kind of guide that. We um, look at scripture together. We worship together. And so I'd encourage you to be here next Wednesday night at 6.30 for that. And then that'll be our last Wednesday night until the new year. We take off the month of December and then I will start a winter equip series in January. Uh, elders uh, discussed that this last week and I'm gonna be teaching for, for uh, in, in January and February on what are known as the five solas of the Reformation. So we're going to look at, at historical theology and really what makes us who we are, the foundational principles theologically of who we are as, um, as Protestants. We're going to talk a little bit about being Protestant today. I mean, so why didn't you think we were Protestants? I thought we were evangelicals or that we were Baptists. Or that, well, we're, we're all one side of a tree. And so... What, what are the foundations of those things and why that matters today? And so we're going to take two weeks on each of the, oh, the solas. Solas mean alone in Latin. And so it's faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, and glory of God alone. Or the five bedrock principles of the Reformation 500 years ago. We want to see why those things still matter today. So that's what we're going to do in the winter equip in, December, in January and February. So we'll take some time off during the holidays and then be back together. Make sure you're here next week though for the Thanksgiving service. It's always a great service together. Um, I wanna open us in prayer and then I'll introduce our last um, equip of the fall here in this series, The Gospel for All. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for uh, our opportunity to be here together. I am so grateful that I am back here after two weeks of others filling in and uh, I'm, I've um, heard great things about what was said and taught, and I know uh, that it was instructive for our church, but I'm certainly grateful to your grace towards me to be back here with our congregation tonight uh, to conclude this series. God, we pray that we would bring glory and honor to your son Jesus as we remind one another of the necessity of proclaiming the gospel to all people, uh, not just some people but that we would prepare our hearts and prepare our minds for difficult conversations, for befriending people and being in the life of people who are different than us uh, and who believe different than us and have different practices than we do, uh, but loving them in the name of Jesus and speaking the truth in that love to them uh, so that some may believe the gospel and be saved. I pray that this, uh, these um, last 
10 weeks or so have been encouraging to us. They've been instructive. And um, Father, we pray that they would be beneficial to the kingdom of God and that people would have gospel conversations with friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors and strangers and that they would be better equipped to do so uh, because of what we've taught over the last couple of months, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it certainly is great to be back with you. I try not to be gone two Wednesday nights in a row. It was uh, normally when I go to Africa, those that may not know, I try to go to be with our partners in Africa twice a year. And when um, I normally try to leave on a Sunday, and one of the reasons I like leaving on a Sunday is because it gets me back for for a Wednesday night. I don't like being gone twice in a row on Wednesday. I really enjoy my teaching time on Wednesday night. It's a little less formal, a little bit more... uh, I feel a little bit more free. I don't know. I enjoy preaching too, but, um, uh, but the way that it worked out with our partners on the ground there, we needed to move some things. And so it, it kept me out two weeks in a row. And so, um, I hope you enjoyed, uh, heard good things about what, um, Gary Sanders had to say to you about reaching out to our military community in our area. I hope that was beneficial when our, uh, whenever we hire our adult discipleship and outreach pastor, we're hoping uh, sometime in the first of the year to have that search completed and have somebody present to you as a congregation. Um, Gary will be one of the first people I, I ask that whoever that man is to go meet and to talk to because I think First Baptist Norfolk is doing an incredible job of reaching out in that community um, and, and doing some really good things. And so I, I hope that was a blessing to you. And then last week, Pastor Michael talking about next generation of evangelism and discipleship and how we proclaim the gospel in our homes, to our children, to our grandchildren, uh, and how that, how that um, demographic in our culture is currently thinking. But today is our last one, and so I had a lot of other things I could have talked about. I really am, feel like, man, I've run out of time a little bit. I always feel like that at the end of a quip session. It seems like all of my, if you go back and listen to the, the last Wednesday night of any equip session, uh, I, it's always a little bit of a hodgepodge because I have uh, multiple things that I want to talk about, and it, that stands uh, true today as I have some things that I want to be able to, to deal with. But I think I'm, I'm able to, to put these all together in a way that makes sense. And I really thought hard about how to do this and how I want to present this, partially because I, I want to be fair and I want to be equitable. I want, I want people, I want to come across as loving and, and kind to you. Our congregation, I, I want you to, to see what I think is uh, good uh, doctrinal understanding of that which is most important and that which we can disagree on. Um, but I also recognize this is online right now. And uh, anytime you put things on the internet, you run the risk of somebody uh, cutting a little piece of it. And that, that, well, the subject that I'm going to have tonight runs that risk. Let me just say it like that runs the risk of somebody taking something out of context. And so I've really tried hard not to, uh, I've really tried hard to make this into something that's going to be really clear and really gracious while also training you in, in our congregation, speaking into something in our congregation that I think is really important because it's probably one of the, at least along the lines of this subject, of the subject of proclaiming the gospel to people, this is one of the biggest questions that I get from people is about what we're going to talk about tonight. And here's the question. It, it, it always starts the same way. I've got a friend, I've got a neighbor, I've got a coworker who is 
Fill in the blank. And the blank being some other Christian denomination. All right? And the, the, the immediate follow-up question is, are they a Christian? So I've got a friend who's a Catholic. Are, are they a Christian? I've, I've got a friend who, um, who goes to a, uh, who, who goes to a you know, liberal mainline church. Are they, are they a Christian? Well, that, you know, that's a loaded question for a lot of reasons. First, it's a loaded question because I don't know your friend. <laughs> you do, but, uh, but I, I likely don't. And so for me to make some kind of judgment call on whether someone is a Christian uh, at arm's length is not something that I'm very willing to do. And so I don't normally answer that question in the way that people want me to answer that question. Uh, I have a way that I answer it, and I'll kind of give you some of that tonight. And that's really what this is, is me answering that question over the, period, over the course of 45 minutes or an hour instead of me answering it in 45 seconds, which is about normally how much I have on a Sunday morning when somebody just kind of pops that kind of thing uh, to me. And so there's any number of other brands, denominations, styles of Christianity that because of the differences between uh, what we believe and what they may believe, um, because of those differences, we begin to ask questions like, is this person actually, this person in my life, this person I care for, this person that I know, is this person actually a, a Christian? And what I think what some people are wanting is like a hard and fast yes or no. Um, but the truth is, if you come to me and say, my friend goes to, you know, this other Southern Baptist church in town, um, are, are they a Christian? I would give you the same answer. I have no idea if they are or not. I mean, I, I would say that. I, do I know that every person that walks through the door of Nansen River Baptist Church on a given Sunday is a Christian? No, I don't know that, right? Because you know the old phrase, right? Go, and you, if, if, uh, if going to church made you a Christian, then sitting in a garage would make you a car, right? So it, it just doesn't, I can't judge that based off of where somebody decides to spend their Sunday mornings. But the deeper side of that question is the, the difference in doctrine that is taught what we hold to be true versus what others hold to be true and how we deal with that equitably and kindly and lovingly, recognizing that some differences um, aren't divisible, meaning we don't have to divide the church over and some differences are. And there are certain places where we have to take a firm stand and say, you certainly can believe what you want to believe, but if you do believe that, you are at odds with the teachings of Scripture. And we're going to rely, I believe, what we should do and what we do as a congregation is rely on the teachings of Scripture to inform us of whether or not someone is actually of the faith or not. It's the only thing that we have to go on. But our tendency, I think, the human tendency, this really is a, a discussion of the flesh in some ways, because our fleshly tendency is to think that everyone who disagrees with us, sometimes on really even minor things, has such a deficient theology that they really just need Jesus. Um, this plays out in our world. This has been the case forever. I mean, literally forever, at least in, since Christianity. You know, by the, by the second generation of 
Christianity, there, there were already differences arising to where you had some people teaching one thing and some people teaching another thing and both thinking that they were teaching the right thing. And it was, it was very quickly in Christian history that we started to see these divisions um, form along church lines and what kind of the precursor to denominational lines. And um, then you started seeing people question the legitimacy of someone else's faith based off of that. Um, and now it's very easy to see with the, with the advent of the internet and everybody's opinion being readily available online. You, you, if you spend any time in Christian circles, which some of you don't, and I'm not even recommending that you do because sometimes it's very depressing. Um, you'll notice there, there are people that are willing to call into question someone's faith over very, very minor doctrinal issues. Um, and I think that is certainly a, a stems from our flesh. Our flesh wants to say, I'm right. And if you disagree with me on anything, then you're obviously wrong. And if you're wrong, then you're not of, you're not of Jesus. Um, and and, and that, that can be really dangerous, I, I, I think. I think it can be harmful to the church. And it also makes it difficult for us to draw that line appropriately. So if we're drawing the line at anybody outside of us is not a Christian. If that's where we draw the line, that anybody different than us in any way, let's say they disagree with us on baptism, they disagree with us on the ordination of, of women into the role of pastor, they disagree with us, and we would have significant... Look, as Southern Baptists, we have significant opinions on both of those subjects, okay? Like really clear-cut opinions in our statements of faith on those, on those subjects. But to disagree with us on those subjects does not make one not a Christian. They they're have firmly, have, have genuinely held beliefs that they're practicing differently than us. And I think they're wrong, but I don't think that makes them not a Christian. But when we, when we do that, when we want to say anybody that's not of us is obviously not practicing the Christian faith and they, are, they need to hear the gospel and be saved, um, then we don't draw the line appropriately within the scope of religion in our world. And I think there is a line to be drawn and we're going to attempt at least to draw that line tonight and to start answering some questions about how do we determine what I think is the question people are often asking when people come and ask me, you know, my friend goes to X church, is, 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 are those people Christians? I think the question people are asking me asking is, how different can someone believe from me and still be a Christian? That's the actual question. How different can somebody be and still be of the faith? Because we depart on, on uh, faith and on certain issues of faith and certainly certain issues of practice. At what point have we diverged? And we already looked at two significant divergence several weeks ago. We look at the divergent of, of, um, of uh, Mormonism, you know, uh, uh, Latter-day Saints, and we looked at the divergence of Jehovah's Witness. Both of those are clear divergence from Christian teaching to the point where it is easy. That's low-hanging fruit right? To the point, and it's easy to say these people are not of the faith. They have not trusted in Jesus Christ, the, the gospel of the scriptures at all. And so we should proclaim the gospel to them because they have, they have clearly diverged from, um, 
Orthodox Christian teaching. But that is not true of many other denominations. And so where, where do we draw the line? The first thing I think we have to do is we have to do the hard work in ourselves of recognizing when it is our flesh speaking and when we're wanting to make people agree with us and draw the line too close. Because there should be know what we refer to, if you've ever taken Connect class with us, there should be no second or third tier doctrine that separates the, the universal body of Christ. Meaning this, we, we consider, even though we are Baptists and have a distinct view on baptism, our distinct view on baptism does not determine whether someone is a Christian or not. So another church in our area practicing some other form of some other form of baptism, I think as long as they are not saying that water baptism is necessary for salvation, that, that becomes an issue. Um, but if they're practicing water baptism in a different way than we are, um, then we're, we're all still of the same faith. We have a different, we have a practice that's a little different. We would put that in as a second tier doctrine. So we want to be careful not to allow things that the Bible it doesn't that the Bible doesn't rise to the level of making someone a believer or not. We, we want to be careful to not elevate those things in our own thinking and our own practice and the own way that we teach in church, the way that we view other people. Because our flesh, I do think, is very tribal and we are very limiting. And so for, it, it is a temptation for us um, to, to want to draw that line uh, too narrowly. But there are some things that are deal breakers. There have to be certain things that the scripture teaches that we say, if a person does not believe this, then they are not a Christian. (laughs) If a person has not come to to real saving faith in Jesus Christ alone for the remission of sin, that they're they're not a Christian. So I want to recommend a book to you before I go further. I'm going to recommend two books today. The first one is actually on this subject. It's a great book. It's actually relatively new. It came out a couple of years ago. It's called Finding the Right Hill to Die On. This took an idea that was first introduced. I, I, I say first introduced. Um, he credits the same person that I think of when I uh, think of this subject is Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern, uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Uh, he wrote a, a blog article or a journal article or something maybe 15 years ago called Theological Triage. And it was, it was something a lot of people had been talking about, but nobody had really articulated it in that way. And then Gavin Ortland, who's the pastor of a church out in California, took that and kind of put it in a book form and expanded on it. This is a really, really helpful read if you are struggling with that question of how wrong can somebody be? Or on the flip side of that, you just don't think there's any such, there's really anything is wrong that as long as people are kind of doing their best to follow Jesus, whatever that looks like for them is, is gonna be good enough. Um, he, he really kind of comes at both of those because there are certain hills we do need to die on. There are certain theological hills that we need to be willing to see. You understand his, now you kind of understand the imagery there, right? This is, um, th- there are certain places that we need to plant our feet and plant our flag and say, I'm not moving off of this to deny this teaching. So teachings like, um, you know, Trinitarian theology that God exists and, eternally is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, substitutionary atonement, that Jesus Christ died in our place 
um, atoning for our sin as the propitiation of, of our sin. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, a physical bodily resurrection of Christ, a future physical bodily um, return of Jesus. These are things that the church holds, that the scripture clearly teaches, um, and, and they should not be necessarily thought of as being denominational distinctives as much as they are just orthodox Christian teachings. And to, to deny one of those, the entire, you know, the dominoes begin to fall. But there are many other closely held religious beliefs, and I have some of them. I have, look, I am, I keep using baptism as an example because I think it's a great example in the Baptist church. We believe in baptism so much in the Baptist church, it's the name of our denomination. That tells you how much we believe in baptism. I have a strongly held belief on believer's baptism. But I'm willing to say that my conservative Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ are in Christ, even though they're baptizing their babies. And we would not do that. I understand why they do it. I just think they're wrong. They think we're wrong. And it's okay. We can say that with joy in our hearts. And Jesus will teach us one day. Um, but I don't have to say that that divides us as Christian and non-Christian. And so that book is helpful. So it's Finding the Right Hill to Die On by Gavin Ortland. It's an easy read. It's not very long and uh, is, uh, is pretty, could be pretty helpful to you. So then let's go back to my main question. Are there Christians in, this is the, remember that question. Are there Christians in blank? So here's, the, here's my actual answer that I often give. Now, if somebody asks the question, like, are there Christians in the Presbyterian church? Sure there are. <laughs> are there Christians in the Lutheran church next door? Sure, sure there are, you know. Are there Christians in the non-denominational church across town? Sure, sure there are, right? Because I know generally what those, the, the faith and practice are of those places. And, and I know that they're proclaiming a, a, a clear gospel. And while we may diverge on certain things, in some cases, many things, we, we, have, we have a similar God. We have the same gospel. And that, that's what's important. And we have core Orthodox Christian beliefs that we would share together. But when the question is on something that I am not sure of that, and I'm going to talk in some specifics about some of these here in just a minute, here's the answer that I most often give. I, would, I, I most often say there are some Christians in those kinds of churches, but the teachings of those churches don't necessarily lead to Christianity. Meaning that person came to a right understanding of the gospel apart from the teachings of their church. Apart from the teachings, and I gotta be careful with the word church there, but apart from the teachings of that community. And I wanna be able to give some examples of this in scripture because we can struggle with how that really works out in our minds. We, we, can, we can think, well, wait, if that, if that you know, community is not actually preaching the gospel, if they're preaching something that is opposite or is in contrary to the Orthodox Christian belief and, and, and the gospel of Jesus and they're adding things to it or taking away from it, then how can there be Christians there practicing it, right? Well, let's go to a couple of places in the scripture that help us see this. The first I want us to see, both of these are going to be in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2 and 3 is, um, are, are seven letters to seven actual churches that existed. That's important to note, right? 
that this is not, um, uh, John's not making this up. He's not, these are actual places, all of these places. I mean, some of them like Ephesus and um, like we know of Ephesus, they got a letter earlier in, um, you know, in the book. And, and so we know of those places. Some of these others we haven't heard of. And uh, I'm not saying that there's not prophetic elements maybe in some of this, um, but these were actual, uh, this was an actual letter with uh, some figurative language, certainly some figurative language in it. But when we read this, I've heard people teach through these, through these churches sometimes and, and them say, well, this church isn't a Christian church. Well, then it wouldn't be. John wouldn't have called it a church, right? So there are at least some Christians in all seven of these places. Let me say it like that. But there are some issues with the teachings in the churches. So let's look at one of them in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, starting in verse 12. That's the one I want to look at. Yeah, Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, the word of, uh, the word of him who has sharp two-edged sword. That's Jesus. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You do not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon, war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden man and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one except the one who receives it. Now, when we read these things, the, these seven letters, the important things we have to do with that imagery is to kind of see how the imagery runs through the section, right? And so there's an opening image and a, and a following image that sandwiches this whole thing together. The first is how he describes Jesus, the word of him who is the... Who, who has the sharp two-edged sword, right? This is Jesus, and what's the sharp two-edged sword? When you think about what does Hebrews say, right? The, the word is sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting to the bone and marrow, right? So this is, this is Jesus and his word. And these are, there are Christians here, but there are also people in this church that are doing what? At least two examples of people teaching false things. And that it, they had, it had risen to kind of a prominent level within the church. That maybe even the, the, the preponderance of the body was following, some of these, was following some of these teachings. And he tells them in verse 16, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So it's, they, they, he, is, he is the sharp two-edged sword they're teaching things that are against the word of God. And, and what is the, how is it that the Lord is going to do battle against them? With the, with the word. So there are people in this church who have embraced wrong doctrine, and yet John still calls it a church. Jesus still recognized that there are followers of Christ there in it. Let's look at another church, the church of Sardis at the beginning of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who have seven spirits of God 
and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now here, Jesus is the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He, he is God. That's, what, that's what's being said here. Right? He, this, is, this is God, the son of the living God, speaking to them. And he says most of them look as if they're dead. Now, spiritually speaking, that's a very dangerous thing, isn't it? So the, the, it seems as if the majority of this church is dead. They, they claim they have reputation of being alive, but they're not actually alive. But that's not all of them, is it? No, verse four, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. So even in this church that is dead, there are people who are alive. So these are two examples. One, a church that is embracing some false teaching and another church that's gone as far away as, as to be described as being dead and yet in both cases, there are believers in those, in those places. So I do believe that, and I'm gonna, we're gonna talk about some denominational you know, branches of Christianity here in this second half tonight. And I believe wholeheartedly that there are Christians in all four of them. I do. With all my heart, I believe that there are people who follow Jesus who have believed the gospel unto salvation, they are wrong about some things, but the, the faith that they came to was, was birthed in them through their own study of scripture, through the instruction of someone else, and for whatever reason, they've de decided to stay and maybe even practice some of the things that they should not stay within and practice within, and yet they are going to follow along with those in Sardis who will walk with God and, and be alive. All right? So we, we want to be careful not to paint with too broad of a brush here and say, oh yeah, all of those people over there, none of those people are actual true followers of Jesus. Because that's not, probably not true. As it wasn't true there, there in, the, in the Revelation. Even these churches that had major issues still had believers amongst them, okay? So, we want to be careful with our own hearts about how we draw these dividing lines. We don't want to draw them too tight knit to us. We want to make sure that we are really actually dying on the right hill. That, that, we're, that when we say some, that, that some church or some faith community is not teaching the true gospel of Jesus and is not leading people to salvation, that, that we, we want to make sure that those are actual first tier, first order doctrines. It's a conversation, by the way, I had to have with the young men planting the church that we're working with in, in Rwanda. It's a big issue there is that 
the majority of places that call themselves churches in Rwanda are, do not preach a biblical gospel. It has a lot of works and a lot of other things tied into it. But that doesn't mean that all of the people that go to those places or that none of the people that go to those places have, have not come to saving faith. Some of them have. They're just, there's, there's a level of, of, pardon the word, there's just a level of ignorance. And, and this exists in our culture as well, that people have not come to right understanding about certain things. Okay? So let's talk about, I want to talk about four. I'm going to try to do this very graciously, as I hope I've done when we're talking about Muslims and talking about Mormons and talking about Eastern religion and talking about cultural Christians and all of these things. I hope my, my goal has been to be gracious all along. All right, the first one. I'm going to just bite off the big apple first. Roman Catholicism. Folks, the, there has been, and, and this, this is, I think, important for us to recognize. There has been a softening of the distinctions between uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants over the course of the last century. Um, the Catholics actually softened first. Uh, they were very clear in their teachings since the 1500s that um, anyone outside of the Catholic Church was definitely not a Christian. That, that was the official teaching of the Catholic Church until what was known as Vatican, the Second Vatican Council, which took place in the 19, early 1970s? Early 1970s. I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm almost positive that's when it was. Um, and at that point, they softened their stance towards not only um, Eastern Orthodox Christians, which they split from long before they split from Protestants, uh, before Protestants split from them, but then they even softened their stance towards Protestants and, and said we were, I forget the exact word that they said, um, but, it, but we were still, there, there's still a distinction. So there was a softening on the, on the Catholic side. And over the last two or three decades, there's been a softening on the Protestant side. Um, you used to hear, and some of you are old enough to remember this, you probably, if you grew up in Baptist churches or Methodist churches, if you grew up in Protestant churches, you probably used to hear people preach against Catholic teaching, like from the pulpit right? You don't hear that. I, I don't, I've probably mentioned the Catholic church, I don't know, five, six times in six years of preaching here. It's just not as common anymore. There's, there's, there's kind of been this softening. And with that has, has risen a generation or two where people think Catholics is just another version of Protestantism or just another denomination. And it's really not. And it's, it's better if we would all just say that, if they would say it, right? The softening that they did in Vatican II, while it, you know, from their theological perspective, meant that we actually get to be called brothers, if not, we're more like, kind of like the prodigal son uh, in their eyes. But um, if they would just really say what they have taught for a long time, and if we would say what, what we think the necessity of the Reformation was, then here's what it comes down to. We preach a different gospel than the Catholic Church does. And, and, and while that, that position and those lines have kind of come a little closer and, and it's softened a lot, can we just be honest? It, we practice a different faith. So I want to recommend another book to you. It's called Are We Together? 
Um, the late R.C. Sproul, which you'll never go wrong reading R.C. Sproul. Uh, the late R.C. Sproul wrote this book called uh, Are We Together? A Protestant Analysis of Roman Catholicism. It's actually pretty easy to read. It's not a very thick book. Pretty easy to read. Um, and he takes a look, I think it's six different items. We're just going to look at a couple of them here. Uh, six different, you know, teaching doctrines within the Catholic Church. And he ultimately ends on this position. Like, we can work together on some things. Like, I am happy to lock arms with... Um, with Catholics on issues of life. And I would go to a, a pro-life rally with, you know, that was organized by the Catholic church and, and march with them for, for issues of life. But we have to recognize that the gospel that we proclaim in Christ and the, and uh, the, the gospel that they proclaim are different. And let me just, let me, there, there are several places that it diverges and I don't have time because I want to talk about some other things tonight uh, to tell you all of them. So let me just tell you one. The elevation of what is known as the sacraments within the Catholic Church to the position of, of, of imparting salvation is, is a hill that we must die on. Right? So we, have, we practice, and most Protestant churches practice what is known as ordinances. We practice, some, some Protestant churches practice more than two ordinances, but the vast majority practice two. Baptism, now we may disagree with how we practice baptism and the Lord's Supper, but those are the two that we, that we practice. We call them ordinances because they were the ordinary, the ordained practices within the church by Jesus. There's no saving communion that takes place. There's no passing on of grace. It's not a means of grace, meaning when you come to the waters of baptism, it doesn't save you. When you come to the Lord's table, like we'll do in two Sundays, um, it doesn't, there's, there's no, there's no salvific work there in the, in the elements of the table. Catholics would directly teach against that. There's actually seven, what are known as sacraments, uh, sacraments because they, they converse salvate some part of salvation on the participant, and there's actually seven within the Catholic Church, baptism, confirmation, uh, holy communion, which is the Lord's Supper, confession, marriage, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick. Within the Catholic Church's documents, which is known as the, the catechisms of the Catholic Church, is this quote. They would say the sacraments are, uh, are signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. It continues, the church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. So that, that to, to participate in baptism into the Catholic church, to have... Uh, your confirmation, which includes your first confession and the first taking of uh, Holy Communion, the ongoing practice of communion, the ongoing practice of confession, that these are necessary for salvation, that you are saving yourself little by little by little by little by little by little. And that, and, and this is seen in one, one practice, and we could, we could talk about several of them, but one practice that this is really seen is the practice of confession. Confession is a biblical principle, by the way. Uh, it's why when Luther split from the Catholic Church, do you know that Luther, when he split from the Catholic Church, um, continued to practice confession? That they kept confessionals in Lutheran churches. Like that, that was an actual thing that they kept for a really long time. Like Luther saw confession, confessing your sins one to another as a, as a biblical practice. 
Um, but what Luther dropped was the unbiblical practice of the forgiveness of those sins by the priest and then a, a command, an order to go do something in penance, right? To say a certain number of our fathers, to say a certain number of Hail Marys, to do the rosary a certain number of times, right? To do those things in penance of your, basically for forgiveness of your, of your sin. If that is necessary, if it's necessary for us to go to a man and confess our sins to them and then do what that man says in order for our sins to be forgiven, um, then we have believed a false gospel or they have believed a false gospel. One of those two things has to be true because there, there is a distinction between calling people to faith in Jesus Christ alone and the imputation of righteousness, really what it comes down to, the biggest difference between Protestantism and Catholicism is imputation. Imputation is how do we get our righteousness? And what Protestants have said since the Reformation is we get our righteousness wholly from Christ alone, that Jesus gives us his righteousness, that we, there's a great exchange that takes place in, in our salvation and we give him our sin and he gives us his righteousness. But if we are earning step-by-step, confession-by-confession, communion-by-communion, practice-by-practice within the, the Holy Catholic Church, if we, are, if we are gaining that righteousness and then if we don't gain enough when we die, we end up going to purgatory to gain the rest of it and people pray us out of there, giving us more righteousness. There is obviously something distinctly wrong there. Now, hear me again. I do believe that there are people who practice these things, who are Catholics, that for one reason or another go to Roman Catholic churches, who are believers in Jesus, who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation. But I do not believe the Catholic Church teaches it. And we probably ought to recover a little bit of that distinction. And so a, a good place, if you're curious about that, I mean this, Are We Together is a really good book. It's a, it's a great question. He explores it, I think, very fairly which is one of the reasons that um, I think there has been a lot of pushback on uh, in my generation of preachers of not preaching so much or using so much Catholic doctrine as examples and, and whatnot in, from the pulpit is because we, I've seen a lot of it done unfairly. And I, I don't want to begrudge people who, you know, in, in ways that are undeserving of it, but we do need to recognize that there is a distinction between us and, and them. Number two is, and so we've, we've already tell you, so if you picture you're like Christianity, not true saving faith Christianity, but what the world sees, what the world calls Christianity, right? As this big tree, we've now cut the tree in half. Okay. Cause, cause really you could divide it into we really kind of a, kind of a third because it, we're, we're thinking Catholics and probably a lot of Orthodox, um, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox in one section and then, and then Protestantism in the other. Um, but we're, we're probably going to divide a little bit more because over the last um, 300 years, really, really escalated over the last 150 years, has been the liberalization of what is known as mainline Protestantism. And you have to be careful here because mainline Protestantism, in similar ways to evangelical churches like Baptist, like the Baptist denomination, um, have experienced 
numerous splits where everybody's kept the same name. So I'm going to be really careful not to name denominations here because to name one, to name a denomination would be to say that every church that would use that term in their church would, would fall into that camp, right? And, and it just is not that way. There have been so many divisions and so many new denominations created um, out of these divisions and some of them, and most of the time over this very subject, most of the time over first order, are we going to believe what the Bible says it means for a person to come to saving faith in Jesus or are we not? And, and then there's been splits, but both sides keeping names. And so to, to name names here, it would be too dangerous for me. So I'm just going to say there are some denominations in the United States um, who would fall into this, who would fall into this mainline Protestant de- denominations that have drifted so far into theological liberalism that they have walked away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me just give you the primary, there, there's, there's just a plethora of playways that they've done this. It's heartbreaking. You look back over the history of it. It's absolutely heartbreaking to, to, to look at, you know, some of the most well-respected, maybe the most well-respected educational institutions in the world, Harvard and Yale, which were both founded on Christian principles intent on training Christian pastors in the truth of God's word. Do either of those places do that anymore? No, they don't do that anymore. Um, Yale still has a divinity school. I'm not sure that Harvard even still has their divinity school anymore, but Yale still has a divinity school, but it does not in any way teach the gospel as we would understand it in scripture uh, by, by any stretch. And this, is, this has been the, the progression in Western uh, Protestantism um, that started a few hundred years ago, but really picked up steam uh, in modernity in the, in the 20th century. But here's the main issue, right? The denial of the substitutionary, denial of substitutionary atonement. Or even to this point, the need of being saved from our sins at all. That where these, where these groups have progressed, they've progressed, they say progress. We, we, we probably ought to think of a different word. They would use the word progressed, right? That, that, that the Christian faith is continuing to grow. And as it continues to grow, new revelation or new ideas and enlightenment and all of these, because a lot of this was, was spurred out of the enlightenment, um, that, that we reject, you know, uh, the exclusivity of the gospel, we, we reject miraculous teachings in scripture. So it, become, it no longer becomes necessary to believe in the virgin birth. It no longer becomes necessary to believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. I mean, do you know that there are seminaries in the United States that don't teach the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Well, look, how do you get past Paul saying, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is all worthless? I don't know. Well, I know how they get past it. They don't believe Paul actually wrote it or that Paul's opinion even matters all that much anyway. And, and so there's this real picking and choosing. And really what they've picked is just a works-based salvation different than that of the Catholics. The Catholics works-based salvation. Catholics is basically a works-based salvation that's saying, do these certain sacraments and you do them often enough and you do them well enough and you'll earn your place in the kingdom of God. What mainline Protestants have embraced really is a, is a love your neighbor works-based salvation. 
that, that the works of righteousness, specifically justice of various kinds, not just, don't just think social justice of the 21st century. This has lasted much longer than just, the, than just this last couple of decades that we've been living in right now. But that there's this creation of righteousness within oneself as you're kind of true to yourself and true to following Jesus in your way. And the goal of these churches is just to kind of help you do that. Now, why someone who understands the gospel and has believed in Jesus and his salvation would stay? You may ask that question. You may ask that question about Catholicism. You may ask it here. You may ask it about other ones. The, the, the truth is life's complicated, isn't it? And there's, there's all kinds of reasons that people make decisions. There, we get comfortable in a place. We have family in a place. There, there's history and and. Um, uh, that, that we have to take into account. So I, I can't answer that question all the time because sometimes people will say, well, if, if they believe that, why do they, why do they go to that church? I, I don't know. Other than to actually look at what the actual teachings are and recognize that, you know, there was, there was a, a Christian, a quote unquote, Christian seminary in, um, in New York State back in the spring that ordained a tree. I'm not making that up. That, that, that really happened. You can Google it. They ordained a tree. Can we just all agree that they have departed from the faith once delivered to the saints? Right? Like we, this is not the gospel of Jesus if we're, going to, if we're going to ordain a tree. All right? And so, yes, there are, even within Protestantism, there are certain denominations who have drifted since the Enlightenment, have drifted into theological liberalism to the point where they no longer identify as biblical Christians. But I've kind of punched left here, so let me punch right. The third one is extreme fundamentalism. Again, this would be one of those that if I were to name denominations, I would, I would do myself, I think, a disservice because this is not true of all of them. This is not true of every, um, every church that we may associate with fundamentalism. I have, I, you know, there are certainly people that probably think Nazareth River Baptist Church is, is a fundamentalist church. And we are fundamentalist in that we believe in the fundamentals of Scripture, but we are not fundamentalists in what I'm describing here. What, what I'm describing in here is, is, a, is an extreme version of Christian legalism where church membership, like right church membership and church engagement, right Bible translation, correct practice of varied legalistic ideals, that these are the things that one must do in order to be saved. And I mean, I've, I've listened to these guys. These people are closer to us. Some of them have Baptists in the name. So, so some of them are, are, not all of them do, but some are closer to us on the theological spectrum. So there are times that I will give myself over to listening or to reading what, what these what are saying, because there are times people will come into this, come into our church, through that, and, and I need to walk with people through certain questions that they have. And listen, I have heard people say, I've heard preachers in these churches say that if your salvation experience was, was in any context other than someone preaching from the King James Bible, then you're not actually a Christian. 
Well, you may love your King James Bible. Folks, that's fine if you do. Um, but can we just all agree that the King James Bible is um, not the words that Jesus spoke or that Paul wrote or Moses wrote, right? They wrote in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, a whole bunch of Greek. Um, and, and, and everything that we have now is a translation. Everything we have now is somebody trying their best to tell us what those original text says and we can trust it and believe that God is going to speak to our hearts through it. But to elevate something to the level of you cannot be saved if you, you know, if your salvation experience was under, was under the teaching of some other, some other translation uh, or you cannot be saved if you, you know, they'd probably have a fit that I'm preaching in my jeans and a hoodie today, um, right? That, that, that there are so many additional add-ons. And again, I wanna be generous and I wanna be gracious, but listen, we get to the point in some of these places where there, there are so many additional add-ons and so many other boxes that we have to check that here's what we lose. We lose the free offer of the gospel that radically changes lives. And, and, and we, we end up doing exactly what Others are doing, all of these basically are works-based salvation. This is really ultimately what it comes down to is people have taken the free offer of the gospel of Jesus to substitute your sin with his righteousness and have added a whole bunch of other things to it that you've got to check off. And so those people exist on our right. One other group quickly, and this I'm really lumping a bunch of people together because holy cow, this is, this is relatively new let's say within the last 50 years, and the splinter groups from this thing, it, it, it'll, it, they're everywhere, okay? And, and every day there's a new one. So I'm just gonna call it prosperity theology, but that is a gross generalization of what I'm actually talking about. Because some of these people that I'm gonna talk about would preach against others that I would also lump into this category. Sometimes these groups are, are labeled as neo-Pentecostals, neo-charismatics, word of faith movement. Um, you recognize them probably not as not all TV preachers, but some definitely TV preachers, uh, people from, uh, pe people that uh, we see preach on TV, used to hold, I don't think you see as much of it anymore, but you know, holding these, you know, thousands and thousands of of healing rallies where it's basically come give us all your money and we're gonna, we're gonna hope to heal you. Everything from that to more modern versions of this thing where signs and wonders and miracles are almost demanded of followers that if you're not practicing in these, these certain signs and wonders and you're not experiencing these things, then there's certainly something wrong with you. Uh, very often within these, uh, with, within these denominations or within these churches, uh, are a demand for external signs as a requirements for salvation. Sometimes it's speaking in tongues. Sometimes it's uh, experiencing some type of second blessing or some type of miracle that you needed to have activated within your life. And if you've not done this, then you're at best a second-class Christian. And in some cases, you're not even a Christian at all. Ultimately, what happens within the teaching structures of this church is that we cast the faith of those who are suffering and the faith of those who, who, are, who are attempting to obey the scripture in doubt. 
It's a, it's a unique form of works-based salvation. The work is just some type of miraculous sign, wonder, expression of, uh, of manifestation of the Holy Spirit that the Bible doesn't demand. And, and there's, there's dangerous teaching to the, and some, again, this is a sliding scale. Some of these, and listen, it's not all, look, I believe that there are both Pentecostal and charismatic churches that are actual churches that preach the gospel. Which is why I was careful with those words, neo-Pentecostalism, neo-charismatic. These are new, neo means new. These are, these are new, these are, these are new movements within those that, that have taken what we probably would have already differed on and expanded them to the point where the gospel has now been substituted with something else. So here's the question, right? I haven't left myself a whole lot of time. Here's the question. How do we actually share the gospel with somebody that's like this? Like if somebody's, if you have a friend that's in one of these camps, a family member in one of these camps, what do you do? Because you've come to me and you've said, well, is, is so-and-so a Christian? And I've not given you a straight answer. I said, well, I don't know. The, the teachings of that church probably don't lead to Christianity, but there are Christians like we saw in Acts 2 and 3 who may be in them. So so what do you do? Well, I think we take the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 7 and we apply it individually to people in our lives. Jesus said this, beware of false prophets. And by, let me make, just speak with boldness here. People that are proclaiming these substitute gospels are false prophets. That doesn't mean everybody in, their, in those communities false prophets. So what do we do? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So do you know what you have to do? You actually have to, be, you have to be involved in a person's life and foster a relationship with this person to the point where you can have open discussions to actually see what it is they believe. We can't just paint with that big broad brush and say, well, because you identify as a Roman Catholic or because you identify as whatever, then, then I'm just going to, I'm gonna you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. No. We need to be willing to actually sit down and listen to people. I've said that as it relates to two or three different subjects over the course of this, you know, 10-week equip study. I hope you hear me on that. A big part of gospel conversations is our willingness to form relationships that actually foster open discussion. That we're willing to listen to people. Because if we're not willing to listen to people, then we're not able to actually find out, is this someone who is bearing good fruit or not? And then once, we've, once we're open, when we're in these open discussions, we actually have to know why we believe what we believe and know what the differences are. Well, it's one of the reasons I think is a good follow-up to this, and I try to balance practical Wednesday night teaching with kind of more doctrinal theological teaching. That's why we're going to go into a doctrinal theological thing next um, when we come back after the holidays with, with those, those looking at those five solas. Because what it helps, what I hope it's going to help us do is to know why we believe what we believe. It's good to know what you believe. 
it's better to know why you believe that thing. Okay. <laughs> why is that actually important? Because you're going to have to help somebody. If, if you do come across somebody and, and this person's in your life and you're looking and say, wait, they have actually bought into this false doctrine, this false gospel. It's not the true gospel of the scripture. They've, they've not believed in Jesus for the remission of their sin. You're going to have to be able to communicate the why to them. What really is the difference? And then call this person to genuine saving faith in Jesus. Actually invite them to believe, not, not just in a new denomination, a new, you know, here, let's just fix this and fix. Your, our goal isn't to fix denominations. Our, our goal is to pray the gospel to people to share the love of Jesus with people. So I, I, I'm, I'm not out there trying to fix what other denominations, whether a Christian denomination or a false gospel preaching denomination, I'm not going to to fix these things. But when I encounter people within them, I want to know, why are you there? And, and, and have a relationship that drives to the point, and this is, we so often fail at that relationship building aspect, but to build a relationship that drives to the point where we actually have a conversation about what the differences are and why it is that it's important that we believe the gospel according to scripture, not according to man and what man has added to it to the point where it has become unrecognizable, right? So that's my encouragement to you. And these aren't the only four, four areas, but I think they're four big ones. And I, again, I hope I've been gracious. I hope that's helped you. And certainly the two books, I always like to say it again at the end, Finding the Right Hill to Die on, Gavin Ortland, Are We Together?, R.C. Sproul, uh, both of those could help you in this, in this conversation. So let me pray for us and we'll be done for the evening. Father, I thank you um, that, that you instruct us in your word. Will you continue, God, to, to show us areas in our lives where we're holding on too tightly to things that we need to be more gracious on or to show us areas in our lives where we need to plant our feet firmly on the top of a hill and say, I'm willing to die here. Not because man has told me so, but because of the clear teachings of the word of God, which has instructed us in what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. We thank you, God, that your word is clear. We thank you that we can know it and we can believe it and that it, it is able to draw men to salvation and that by the truth of it, your Holy Spirit changes our lives. Give us a passion for the lost, a passion for those around us who have been deceived. Help us to be bold with the gospel as we lovingly point them towards Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Next week, Thanksgiving service at 6.30. Don't miss that. And then we will be back together after that, following that, the first Wednesday of January, which I believe is January 5th if I am not wrong. If I am, it's the first, Jan it's the first Wednesday in January. All right? God bless you.